Chapter 23, Part 1 of The Story of My Life and Work This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy The Story of My Life and Work by Booker T. Washington Looking Backward, Part 1 my work at Tuskegee has always been of a threefold nature. First, the executive work of the institution proper. Second, the securing of money with which to carry on the institution. And third, the education through the public press and through public addresses of the white people North and South as to the condition and needs of the race. On the grounds, in addition to the ordinary task, involved in educating and disciplining over a thousand students is added the responsibility of training them in parental directions involving systematic regulations for bathing eating sleeping the use of the toothbrush and care of health in performing these duties especially in collecting money in the early years i have often met with many discouragements but i early resolved to let nothing cause me to despair completely the first time i went north to secure money for the tuskegee institute i remember that on my way i called to see one of the secretaries of an organization which for years had been deeply interested in the education of our people in the south i supposed of course that i should receive a most cordial and encouraging reception at his hands to my surprise, he received me most coldly, and proceeded to tell me in the most discouraging tones possible that I had made a mistake by coming north to secure aid for our school, and he advised me to take the first train south. He said that I could not possibly succeed in securing any funds for Tuskegee. In fact, he told me very frankly that I would not secure enough money to pay my traveling expenses. I confess that this bucket of cold water thrown upon me at a time when I needed encouraging and sympathetic words more than anything else rather tended to take the heart out of me, but I determined not to give up, but to keep pressing forward until I had thoroughly demonstrated whether or not it was possible for me to secure funds in the North. I will not prolong this story except to say that within a period of four years after I was so coldly received by this secretary, he introduced me where I was to speak at a large public meeting in New York City in the interest of Tuskegee, and in introducing me to the large audience, he used the most flattering language and praised me without stint for the successful work that I was engaged in doing. I do not know whether he remembered, while he was introducing me, that I was a young man he had discouraged only four years before. I shall never forget my first experience in speaking before a northern audience. Before I went north, General Armstrong had talked to me a good deal about what to say and how to say it. I shall always remember one of his injunctions, which was, give them an idea for every word. When I first went into the North to get money, I began work in one or two of the small towns in the western part of Massachusetts. As I remember it, 
The first town that I reached was Northampton. As I expected to remain in the town several days, my first effort was to find a colored family with whom I could board. But as very few colored families lived in that town, I found this not an easy job. It did not occur to me that I could find accommodation at any of the hotels in Northampton. As an indication of General Armstrong's deep interest and helpful influence in the establishment and progress of this institution, I insert a letter of recommendation he gave me to be used among people in the North. These letters were always given most freely, and the general was constantly in search of opportunities to serve the school. Hampton, Virginia, October 26, 1891. This is to introduce Mr. Booker T. Washington, the head of the Tuskegee, Alabama Colored Normal and Industrial School. It is a noble, notable work, the best product of Negro enterprise of the century. I make this statement advisedly. I beg a hearing for Mr. Washington. He is a true Moses. As much as any man in the land, he is securing to the whole country the moral results which the Civil War meant to produce. Tuskegee is a bright spot in the black belt of the South. It is a proof that the Negro can raise the Negro. S. C. Armstrong on the day before General Armstrong was stricken with the paralysis which finally resulted in his death, I remember that I met him on Beacon Street in Boston and told him that some ladies in New York were discussing the matter of giving us a new building, but seemed somewhat undecided as to the wisdom of doing so. I was talking to the General about interceding in order to get these friends to decide to furnish the building. He seemed greatly interested in the matter and promised to either see or communicate with these New York ladies. Before we finished our conversation, however, we were interrupted by someone and we did not finish the talk about the building. The next day, General Armstrong was stricken with paralysis and no one was permitted to see him for several days. After several days had passed by, the doctors seemed to be convinced that he could not live but for a few hours, and I, in company with several other persons, was allowed to see him in his room at the Parker House. To my surprise, the minute I entered the room, he took up the thread of our conversation concerning the building where it was broken off several days previously on Beacon Street, and began at once advising how to secure the building. The general did not recover from this stroke of paralysis, but lived about eight months after it. In January 1893, that is, about four months before he died, he came to Tuskegee, or rather was brought to Tuskegee, because he was too weak to travel alone, and remained a guest at my house for three weeks. During these weeks he suffered intensely at times, but was always in good spirits and cheerful. His heart was so wrapped up in the elevation of the Negro that it seemed impossible to induce him to take any rest. Most of the time when he was not asleep, he was planning or advising concerning the interest of the black man and spent much time in writing articles for newspapers and to friends in the North. 
He was present during the session of our Negro Conference in February, 1893, and it was a memorable sight to see him carried by the strong arms of four students up the stairs of the chapel and into the presence of the conference. The impression that the sight of General Armstrong made upon the members of the conference is almost indescribable. All felt as though he was their most strong and helpful friend and they had a confidence in him that they had in no other being on earth. It was at this conference that General Armstrong made his first attempt to speak in public after he was stricken with paralysis, and his success in being heard and understood was so encouraging that he spoke to audiences on several other occasions. I must not neglect to mention the manner in which General Armstrong and Mr. Howe the farm manager at Hampton, were received at the school on the occasion of this visit, for this was the second visit that the general had made to the school. Both students and teachers were most anxious to do him all the honor possible, and for several weeks previous to his coming, we were quite busily engaged in devising some plan to receive the general in a proper manner. At last, it was decided to ask the authorities of the Tuskegee Railroad to run a special train from Tuskegee to Chiha to meet the general. This request of the railroad authorities very kindly granted. He arrived upon the school grounds at about nine o'clock at night. Each student and teacher had supplied themselves with a long piece of light wood or litted, as the colored people are in the habit of calling it. A long line was formed, and when he came upon the school grounds, the general was driven between two rows of students, each one holding one of these lighted torches. The effect was most interesting and gratifying. I think I never saw anything done for the general which seemed to make him so happy and give him such satisfaction as this reception. The first public address that I delivered in the North was in Chicopee a town not far from Springfield. I spoke in the Congregational Church in the morning, but was careful to commit my entire address to memory. I was a little embarrassed after the morning meeting was over, when several of the members of the congregation, in congratulating me over my success, stated that they had enjoyed my morning address so much that they had planned to go to Chicopee Falls, an adjoining town, to hear me speak in the evening. As I had only the one address to deliver, one can easily see that I was in rather an embarrassing position. While the greater portion of my speaking has been before northern white audiences, I also improved every opportunity to speak to my own people, both in the north and in the south. In fact, during the earlier years of the institution, I carried on a regular campaign of speaking among the colored people in the South, going to their churches, Sunday schools, associations, institutes, camp meetings, conferences, etc. They did not, as I have stated, take kindly to the idea of industrial education at first, and it was largely by reason of my effort in these public meetings that I succeeded in converting them to the idea of favoring it. At one time I hired a team and took one of the older students with me, and we drove for many miles, stopping at the homes of individuals and at churches to explain to them 
the work of the school. The first opportunity I had to speak to a Southern white audience was on the occasion of the gathering of the Christian Workers' Convention, which was held in Atlanta in 1893. It seems that it was largely because of the impression that I made upon this audience in Atlanta that the authorities of the Atlanta Exposition were led to extend me an invitation to deliver an address at the opening of that exposition. I shall let an account given in the Christian world, published in New Haven, Connecticut, take the place of my own words in regard to this address before the Christian Workers' Convention. Booker T. Washington principal of the Tuskegee Alabama Normal and Industrial Institute, was given a place on the program at the Convention of Christian Workers held at Atlanta, Georgia, in 1893, for a few minutes' report of progress, the time being thus brief on account of the fact that a full report, with questions and answers covering three-quarters of an hour, had been given at the convention the year previous, held in Tremont Temple, Boston. When he made the engagement, he doubtless expected to be either at Tuskegee, which is not far from Atlanta, or spending the convention days with other Christian workers in Atlanta. It came about, however, that he found it necessary to make engagements in the North immediately before and after the date on which he was announced to speak at Atlanta. To keep his Atlanta engagement, it was necessary that he should leave Boston for that city reaching there on the last train arriving before he was announced to speak and to return north on the first train leaving atlanta after his brief address it was a great sacrifice for a five minutes address mr washington said simply that it was his duty to keep his appointment it does not appear that the fact that he would be compelled to travel about five hundred miles for every minute of his address had much weight or even consideration to do his duty was not small or unimportant the results of this address were great great beyond all human thought mr washington has since stated that he had never before made an address to the white people of the south his audience of over two thousand leading christian people ministers, businessmen, legislators, lawmakers, judges, officials, representatives of the press from Atlanta, from Georgia, and from other states of the South were charmed by his personality and the passionate earnestness with which he set forth the magnificent scheme of Christian effort at Tuskegee and pleaded for the upbuilding of his race under southern skies. This representative audience saw before them a representative of his race such as they had not been wont to see. His address was flashed over the wires by sympathetic press agents through the South, and he probably never before spoke to a larger and more influential audience. But in the providence of God, there were still greater results. I have always made it a rule to keep engagements of a public nature when I have once made a promise to do so. On one occasion I had an appointment to speak in a small country church not far from Boston. Just before night a severe snowstorm came up, and although I knew this storm would keep everyone from the meeting, I made it a point to be present. When I got to the church, there was no one present except the sexton. 
The minister himself did not come, and when I saw him later he was surprised to find that I had been at the church on the night appointed and told me he felt sure I would not be present on account of the storm. In the earlier days of the institution, of course, it was a difficult task to secure interviews with persons of prominence and wealth in the North, but General Armstrong's recommendations, which he was always willing to give, in most cases served to secure me a hearing. It was equally difficult in our early history to secure opportunities from ministers and others to speak before their congregations. Such calls on ministers were, of course, very numerous, and one can hardly blame them for shutting out those with whom they were not well acquainted. I have often been surprised to note the number of irresponsible and unworthy colored men and women who spend their time in the North attempting to secure money for institutions that in many cases have no existence, or when they exist at all are in such a feeble and unorganized condition as in no way to have a claim upon the generosity of the public. Many of these schools, of course, within a radius of a mile or two, do reasonably good work, but I am quite sure that time has come when the North should confine its gifts wholly to the larger and well-organized institutions which are able to train teachers or industrial leaders who will go out and show these local communities how to build up schools for themselves. Three or four hundred dollars given to one local community may serve to help it for a time, but there are a hundred thousand other communities that need help just as much. Scattering a few hundred dollars here and there among local communities amounts to little in putting the people upon their feet, but putting it into a teacher who will show the community how to help itself means much in the way of the solution of our problem. End of chapter 23, part 1